good to, good to be together. Thank you, Lee, for those words. I, I really appreciate that, and I so echo those, those sentiments, and um, encouraging to hear you share that, so thanks for sharing. First um, John, we're in the book of First John. Ryan opened us last week. Um, John is the quintessential pastor. Uh, if you read First John, it doesn't sound like um, it doesn't sound like a letter. There's no greeting. Uh, there's no introduction. It just jumps in, and it's really like a sermon. But John's giving us a sermon. It probably was given to the church at Ephesus, maybe to the churches in Revelation. You know those seven churches mentioned. It's probably a circular letter. And so John doesn't waste a lot of time uh, with a particular audience. He just comes in and starts sharing, as Ryan shared last week, what you have seen, what I have seen, and what I have heard, and what I have touched. That is the Lord Jesus I come to proclaim to you. Now John has a difficult task because um, in, if it is Ephesus, the, the, in, if he, Acts 20, uh, Paul gives a warning to the elders at Ephesus that uh, we have to pay attention to our lives. Uh, because we can go wayward. And he also says we have to pay attention because there are those that come inside the church, uh, but they're like wolves among sheep. And they, they uh, mislead and they teach false doctrine. So we have to both care for our own hearts and our own lives, our own purity with the Lord, and we have to guard and protect the church. And that's what the elders are being charged to do in Ephesus. And John actually does both of those things as he gives this letter. Um, he, he wants to uh, help um, the sort of uh, maybe hypersensitive soul that is constantly guilt-ridden, that's constantly afraid of, of losing their salvation. So he wants to reassure them this letter is about assurance, that you can know that you belong to Jesus. Anybody here wrestle with their salvation? Ever wrestle with that? Right, anybody? No one. Just me. Okay. Uh, thank you. There have been moments, right, we wrestle with it. So, so John wants to put us at ease to say, no, uh, there is a reality that is objective, namely that Jesus has died and risen for you. And so he wants to assure us of that. At the same time, he wants to give the sternest possible warning to those who have taken the faith and their salvation lightly. So he wants to assure and he wants to, uh, to warn. He wants to comfort the worried and he wants to worry the comfortable. And he often does it in back-to-back verses. And so people say, John is, is contradicting himself. And no, he's actually trying to hold in tension these two realities, that we have to be on guard with our own hearts, and we have to protect against a false teaching and false doctrine coming into the church. I hope you see, just as an aside, do you see how holding those tensions, do you see how reading the Bible, even just reading it, forces you to be a person of character? Do you see that? Because you're reading it, and you're realizing he's saying this, and he's saying that. And so you have to work through it. So you have to navigate tension, and you have to hold two things that on the surface might look contradictory. But actually, it's two different audiences. It's a different occasion. And actually, they both play out in their own life, where we sometimes take sin lightly, right? And sometimes we fear at every sin that we've lost our salvation. And so we have to wrestle with people of character. Reading the Bible is a discipline that forces us uh, to hold that together. This is uh, John has a pastoral heart. Would you stand? We're going to read uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. These words to encourage and to protect the church. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So last week, he saw the resurrected Jesus, he touched him, and now this is the message to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness. Um, When the Bible talks about light, light does a couple things. Light reveals, light illuminates, light exposes. I was doing some work in my backyard and there's this big piece of plywood that's been there for Lord knows how long. And I lift up the plywood and what happens? All these little critters just take off, right? Little roaches and other things, right? Got a gross face, right? The light exposed the darkness and they tried to hide. Light exposes. God, in the beginning, let there be light. He took a dark dark canvas and he illuminated it. And um, the scripture says that the word is a lamp unto our feet and a light. It it reveals the path. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He He radiates, he illuminates in the world. And certainly here, God is light, speaks to um, God revealing, uh, Jesus revealing who God is. But light also has another thing it does. Um, Here when it says God is light, it's referring to a quality. uh, A quality of, of moral purity and excellence and righteousness um, that is unmatched. God is light. Uh, the pagans' gods often reflected, uh, uh, they related to the sun or to the moon, and they had sense of, of light, of revelation. But God is light speaks so much to who he is in his personhood that he sets the moral direction of the world. He is of such quality, of such pureness, purity and holiness that he actually demands an ethical way of living so he reveals but he also holds up the standard God is light and it says that in him there is no darkness at all isn't that interesting um, if you talk to physicists or you, you or you google what is the definition of darkness what's the definition of darkness It's the absence of light, right? There's no light in darkness. But here, he's saying there's no darkness in the light. There's a sense at which darkness encroaches upon the light to gain ground on the light. That darkness tries to overcome and to compromise that which is ultimately pure, that which is ultimately holy. What does this mean that God is light? It means that he has no shadows. It means there's no underbelly to God. There's no uh, dark side. It means uh, he's not a leader that we esteem and then we find out he's got a shady past. He's not a politician that we respect and then uh, the, the campaign gets to work and they dig up all the dirt on him and all the things he's done wrong. It means that he is light. That he is of the finest, the purest, 
the holiest quality, that nothing can diminish who He is. In Him, there is no darkness. There is no scandal. There is no disappointment. Bob Yarbrough, commentator, says this, God is light. This is the thesis of this letter. Why is that? Because if you've read 1 John, you know there's a lot of commands about loving one another, about keeping yourself pure from the world, about obeying the commands. And all of those are done in contrast to the light. He is light. But you and I, (laughs) we're very familiar with darkness. We know darkness. Even the, the best of us, we know there's a dark side. We know there are things in our heart that we'd rather not be known. We know if you knew our real intentions of our heart, you knew the motivations, it's ugly, right? There's sin. There's darkness. And so John holds up this theme, God is light. And now we're going to look at what do we do? What's our response to the light? How do we relate to the light that's in each of us. There's three inadequate responses or false responses, and there's two proper ways we respond. There's three wrong ways, two right ways that we respond to the light. All these verses, if you read them, they're in that if-then statement. If we say, then. If we say, then. The first false response to the glory of the light of God is, we say, I am indifferent to the darkness. Look at verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, some of us, we see the light and we, we have confessed it and yet we live counter to it. We say we walk in the light, but we actually do something else. We live as though sin is no big deal. We live as though we can sin and there's no uh, penalty, there's no consequence. In other words, moral failure has no regard, has no impact on our relationship with God. It doesn't matter, they're, they're, they're separate. What we say and what we do is separate. You ever heard this as a church, right? How many Christians? What, what's, our, what's like non-Christians' number one charge? They're all a bunch of... Hypocrites, if you don't know that, you're called a hypocrite. In some sense, we should own that. You know, Gandhi's famous words, right? I, I, like, your Christ, I, I like your Christ, just not your Christians. You Christians are so unlike your Christ, is what he said. Right? We can say we have fellowship with God, but we have no intentions to live in the light. Um, you know, it's a, this is not a political statement, I think... Every side of the aisle would agree. It's like uh, our president, what was it last week, you know, doing, doing one of these, you know. What's, not sure what he was doing holding up the, the Bible. He's not the first politician, um, but it didn't seem like he's probably very familiar with the text. There's an inconsistency between what we say and what we do, and we're not just poking fun at the president. Um, it's true of us. We say we take sin seriously, we say we walk in the light, and yet we aren't really concerned uh, about uh, racial issues. 
We say we're people, uh, we, we say we're about mercy and yet we uh, demonstrate mercilessness. We say we care about purity and yet we regard sexual sin very, very lightly. We say we care about unity and yet we, we gossip and we slander. Um, traditionally, this perspective is called antinomial, antinomialism. It's against the law. We, we claim one thing, but we live as though the law doesn't apply to us. Um, it's true in our churches. We have pet sins. We excuse. We minimize. What's the implication of this darkness? The text says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, then we lie. We don't practice the truth. We are liars. We've been caught. We can trick one another, but the Lord sees, and he calls us liars. We're called to take sin seriously. That's the first false response. We see the light of his purity. We can live confessing and living two separate lives. The second false response, we say, I am immune to the darkness. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Have no sin. What is he saying? He's saying some of us believe that we have not been compromised by sin. And you say, no, who says that? Maybe we back it up a little bit and put it in our terms. We'll say, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a really good person. They're, they're a good person. Uh, look at verse 8 and then verse 10. Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin. Verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned. Seems the difference is one. Verse 8 is talking about our heart. If we say we have no sin, is that we have not a sin nature. Verse 10, we keep, we're claiming that we're actually not doing particular sins. So here, we assume that we are good. That mankind is basically good. This is a product of the enlightenment, of humanism. If mankind, given enough time, given enough education, given enough resources, given enough freedom, we will make good decisions in light of the whole. Is that not a modern idea? That's actually, if you want to argue theologically against this uh, defund the police, I think we need police reform, but if you want to argue theologically, you're, you're here. If we had no police, as though the idea is that left to our own devices, we will do good for one another. We will do good. We will have each other's best interests. Has been proved time and time again. Our hearts are bent towards self. We have God's law to rein in and restrict us because our heart is wicked. That's why we need legislative change. But ultimately, the only thing that can change is the gospel changes our heart. Because our heart is not good in and of itself. It needs to be shifted. It needs to be changed. We need to own. The beginning of change is to own our sinful heart. And so how do we do this? How do we feel immune? Um, we take sin and we, instead of taking it as an internal thing, we make it an external thing. This is the work of the Pharisees, right? We, we put it out there. It's something to solve. It's a problem to solve. That's why the race, it's a thing out there. Or uh, other, it's an uh, anger, it's a thing out there. It's a circumstance. It's something out there 
That's the problem. But Scripture says the problem is in here. Uh, the Pharisees dealt with things here, but they didn't deal in their own hearts. Um, one of the things we should have learned from the 20th century um, is that the man's heart is wicked. Um, in the 20th century, we had the most technology, the most advances, the most health care, uh, the most opportunity, uh, the ability to, to get places and do things we've never done, and yet, what? The most bloodshed. More blood was shed in the 20th century than in any other century put together in human history. And so all the good inventions of man could not curb or curtail the heart, and you say, well, that was just the bad guys. That's just Hitler and Stalin and Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and whoever else it may be. It's the Democrats or the Republicans or the, the Yankees or the Southerners or somebody else, right? Somebody else. What does John say? If we say that, we have deceived ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We're deceived. We think it's out there. The problem is in here. Keller brings this point out in a lot of his stuff. Tim Keller, isn't it interesting how if someone sins against you, what do you, what do you think? What do you do? Immediately you impugn motives to them, right? You think the all-time worst about them. They're, they're such liars. They're such, I can't believe, I can't believe them, right? But what happens if you, do, if you sin against someone else? I just had a bad day. I mean, it was, I was up all night. I hadn't had my coffee yet, you know, right? I mean, it's been stressful at work. <laughs> we take our sin and we minimize it and we downplay it and we deflect it. We try to get away. We try to keep it out here. Something out here impacted here because it's hard to come to grips that the problem is actually in here. But with others, we're very quick to say it's in their heart. They are liars. They are evil. They are wicked. We think we are immune in ourselves, and we have become deceived. We are dishonest. Some of us are indifferent. Some of us think we're immune. It's not impacted us. Final false response to the, the glory of the light of God is that we think we can conquer the darkness. It's a position of arrogance. We think we can conquer. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. It's a little distinction. Okay, sin's a serious thing. Uh, yeah, I have a sinful heart. But now in Jesus, I, I've, I've overcome that. I've, I've arrived. I'm spiritually mature. I'm the spiritual elite. I've turned the corner. I've, uh, I've made it. What does that create in our hearts? It creates judgmentalism. Creates ways that we, can, we condemn other people. We look down upon them. If they would only get their act together. Look where I am. It seems like John was combating some Gnostic teaching in his day. That taught this. That once you had the spirit of God. You can actually come to a place of perfection. Uh, some movements today that teach a second baptism of the spirit. Teach the same thing. It's called sinless perfection. That actually in this life you can obtain holiness and perfection in this life. It's uh, 
false teaching according to Scripture? Why is that? He makes the strongest statement here. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him. Not how we lied, but we make God to be a liar. Why is that? We make Him to be a liar and His Word is not in us. You remember, and uh, some of you don't because you weren't alive. Uh, I see Justin Hawar out there. 1994, Major League Baseball went on strike. And uh, the, uh, the, the players association, the owners couldn't get it together. Like now, I guess it's still happening. And uh, they went on strike, and they did something hilarious and despicable. They got replacement players. Do you remember that? Repla- they got these, like, beer belly dudes that played in high school that, you know, were living the glory days. You know, they couldn't touch their knees, you know. From, they get, it, it was, uh, and they, they put them on the stage to play. People wanted baseball so bad, and the big leaguers weren't, couldn't play, so they got Joe Schmo to get out there and play. And it was a comedy of errors, like routine fly balls going off people's heads, you know, pitchers couldn't hit the backstop with a pitch. It was embarrassing. Um, but what, what did it do to baseball, though? And what did it do to baseball players? It, it was claiming, it was a false thing, right? It was so inferior, but it was claiming to be the real deal that it downgraded baseball. It was a mockery of baseball. It was a mockery of baseball players, professional players. It was a laughing stock. It made baseball, made the real players to be out to be liars, to be mocked. That's what he says here. When you say you have perfected yourself, and we may not say that in this camp, but we, we feel like we've arrived spiritually. We've overcome sin and we're, we, we actually diminish the quality of God's perfection to such a degree we make him out to be a liar. His holiness and His purity is so great and so grand, and we think we're actually on par with Him. We've downgraded His holiness, His light. We have brought darkness upon Him in such a way that we've sought to compromise His character by the false perspective that we have arrived. It tarnishes it. It lacks reality that even though the penalty of sin has been taken, we still wrestle with the power of sin in this life. It is a battle daily to wrestle with sin. We're not immune. We're not indifferent. And we cannot fully conquer sin in this life. So what should our response be? How should we live in light of who God is, how should we live? Verse 7, two proper responses. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, we must be committed to God's standard. Not to lower it, not to minimize it, but to be committed to the standard, to walk the moral path to walk in righteousness and holiness, to pursue the light. Now we just said that if you claim to be without sin, you make him to be a liar, right? So walk in the light does not mean perfection. What does it mean? It means that we pursue the path of righteousness. It means we are on the trail. It means we have given up the rebellion. 
We've given up the coup to overthrow God's authority and his rule and his reign. We have surrendered and laid down and we've followed him. And we will do it imperfectly and we will struggle and we will fail, but we will move towards him. We will move towards the light as he is the light. We pursue him. Let me ask you, is there a difference in your life? Do you, do you see a different? Do you see change? Look back six months. Look back pre-COVID to now. Is there a change in your life? The light of God impacts us as we walk in the light, and we're changed. Do, do you see a difference in your life from your non-Christian friends? Assess that. There should be a difference. Not perfection but a coming out of the shadows, a pursuing of light, a naming of our sin, the final response, the ultimate response. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe the best verse, right, in John. What's our response? We confess our sins. We seek to walk as a believer. We seek to pursue righteousness, to walk in the light. And as we fall and stumble along the way, we come clean. We confess. We name that we've fallen short. Everything in us, when the light hits us, like those roaches, when the light hits us, we want to run. We're exposed. We're, we're, uh, you know, we're the deer in the headlights at, late at night in the country road. And we're like, we're caught. Just know you're caught. Like Jesus caught you. You can't skirt it. You can't minimize, deflect it, blame shift. You can't do all the things we've been doing since Adam and Eve in the garden. You're caught. You're exposed. And now what do you do? You confess. It's the most freeing thing. Romans 2 says it's the kindness of God that leads to confession. He said, come. It's not like he doesn't know. Alex, he knows your heart. I saw your beautiful smile, so I had to. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. We don't have to pretend like we're something we're not. We just get to f- name it. It's freeing. And look what sin does. Look what it does when he, when he, I'll, I'll finish with this. Sin does two things to us. Our confession, the Westminster Confession, names this really well. Sin makes us guilty. And it also makes us corrupt or polluted or stained. So we're, we're guilty legally, we're guilty, we're also we're dirty, blood-stained hands. And look what it says here. We confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. He forgives us, we're not guilty. We're clean, we're absolved by the Lord. And then what? To cleanse us, we're washed we're cleansed. He declares us righteous, forgiven, but then he also makes us clean. He makes us pure. He makes us righteous in himself. Our only hope is that the blood of Jesus here would cleanse us. And a final thought, this should be so encouraging. Um, what confidence do we have how do we know he's going to do that? It says he is faithful and just. 
to forgive us. So he said he would on his promise, so he's faithful to his promise. He is light, and he has to be light, so if he's not faithful, he's not light. Darkness has compromised him, and therefore he's not who he says he is, and therefore we have no hope. So he's faithful to his promise, but he's also just. What does that mean? Why is God just in forgiving our sins? Because why? Because he's already punished Jesus. We can pray and we can demand in Jesus that he forgive us. And God has bound himself that he would because why? Jesus has already paid for our sins. If we have to pay for our sins too, that's double punishment. That's not justice. That's injustice, right? That's wrongly accused. You've seen the movie Just Mercy, right? Falsely accused. If he held us guilty in Christ, it would be unjust. Because Jesus has fully paid for it. And so he is faithful and just. He has to, in Jesus, forgive us of our sins. We demand of it. And he has bound himself to his own word that he would. And if he doesn't stick to his word, he's not pure light. And darkness has done what it's done to us. It's compromised him. That's why John says God is light. There is no shadow. There is no darkness. There is no compromise. We go to God and we confess with the utmost confidence that he has pledged himself to forgive us because the blood of Jesus covers us. He is faithful and just. This is uh, direct today. Marvel. Don't just start thinking about your sin. We want to do that. Marvel at the light. And stare at the light long enough to let it expose your heart and your sin. And when you see it, confess it. You're caught. Name it. And then plead the blood of Jesus. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Let's pray.